Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you. Thanks for downloading the show. This is a podcast called Better Than Yesterday. I guess the promise of this podcast is that something that you hear on this show, on every show in fact, will help you make today just a, a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Because that's what life is really. You know, how can you improve just a little bit every day? Because life without growth, that's not life, is it? All life is growth. It's growth or death. That's really it. There's no statics. No static in, uh, in life. How'd that get so deep so quick? Anyway, thanks for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg. If you've never listened to this show before, I'm a TV host and an author and a podcaster and a dad and a stepdad and a lifting of heavy things and a just recently getting back on my bicycling uh, guy. I'm nearly 47 years old, but I have a hip that's six weeks old, which is very exciting. And um, I'm here twice a week. Mondays, I speak with a guest. Uh, Fridays, I speak with you. And I'm here every week. I've been here since 2013. I hope you're okay. I hope you're doing all right. It's uh, been an interesting couple of days in the world, hasn't it? Holy moly. Thanks heaps for everyone that did get in touch and um, expressed how much they enjoyed the, the recent few episodes on a Friday. Uh, I really thank you so much for that. I'm very proud of all the interviews that I do on this show. I'm also very proud of all the, the shows that I do on a Friday where I just talk with you and check in with you. And um, I don't know, I got sent photos of people who, who put post-it notes and stuff up on the wall from things from last Friday's show. And I keep getting feedback about the 21 questions for 2021. And I just, I just thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Uh, thank you very much. If this podcast does bring you value, you know, if, if you want to give that back to me, the, the best thing you can do is to rate this podcast wherever you can rate it and recommend this podcast to somebody else. Tell another person to listen to it. Either send them an episode and a link or or whatever, said, click share in the corner of your podcast app and send it over to someone, hey, check this one out. This is a good one to share too because Ursula Carlson's amazing. So that'd be good. It's, um, I have no idea. Like when I recorded this show on Friday, we were yet to have the the UK kind of type two 
mega COVID bust out in Brisbane. And so things are very different. So who knows what will happen this next week? We don't know. But I can tell you that there's a bit of a running theme in my life at the moment. As things become more and more beyond my control, I just try to remember that line, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And that's, I guess that means being sure that I make sure to do all the things I need to do to make sure I have resilience in my life. Santa was very, very kind and Santa bought a weights bench to our house, which is great because I've just had a hip replaced and so I can't squat or lift anything from the ground very heavy for a while. So I kind of need a bench, even though I've got kettlebells and all kinds of stuff downstairs, I I can't pick them up because um, the bone's still growing into the new hip. But I can lie on a bench and take the load off my hip and and work that way. And it's been great. It's been very good. I've been able to get back on the bicycle as well. Very, very slowly at first. But yeah, it's it's really important. If you just remember that if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. You don't have to be chasing your own tail, trying to calm yourself down from an anxiety or a depressive episode. If you keep the resilience up, if you do what you need to do to keep up in in your resilience. And, and I guess, you know, I'll, I'll talk more about this on Friday, but you know, very simply what you can do is you can check in with yourself or always ask yourself, I guess what I do is I always ask myself what else is going on, what else is happening in my life? Is this some fear energy or anger energy busting out from another part of my life that I can't face just yet? And just remember to do what you can where you are with what you have. Um, You know, that's it. Do what's in front of you. And remember that, you know, the only way to eat an elephant is a bite at a time. That's it. I'll talk more about this on Friday, but, you know, the short version is over the next few days, it's going to get pretty interesting. So just understand what you can control, accept what you can't, and then take action and adapt and act to the situation that you're in. I'll talk more about it on Friday, but that's the the short thing I would say as we face these next couple of hours and days ahead of us. Thanks for hanging in with the best of 2020. I'm I'm grateful to be able to bring these to you with new intros and to revisit episodes from 2020 that really resonated with me, with the team and and with you. We're back to new episodes next week, but kind of, I guess it's perfect timing in light of what happened in the US this week. It is pretty epic to get someone who's lived in a country that at least played their systemic enshrined racism openly for all the world to see. They didn't pretend it wasn't there. Um, Ursula Carlson was born and grew up in South Africa. Because in the US, it's a very different story. They'll tell you one thing, but the actions mean something very different. And it's very simple to see. Just have a look at how the, a few months, just a few months ago, how the Black Lives Matter protesters were met in Washington, DC, versus how the MAGA crowd was met in Washington, D.C. The double standard is utterly impossible to ignore. Just imagine, and I'm sure you have, just imagine if any of those people running through the Capitol building in the U.S., if their first name wasn't Chuck or Larry, imagine if their names were Jamal or Muhammad. That would be dead, dead, deadly, dead, dead. And no one would have had a problem putting a bullet in them. But when it's white people uh, looting, uh, no problem, off you go. The systemic racism, the incredible double standard in the response is, is stark. And, you know, when you think about the past in America, you know, non-white people protesting is 
is equivalent to terrorism and in some cases is met with deadly force or enough, not deadly, extremely violent force. Uh, white people protesting, though, that's exercising a right to protest. And it's fine because in that society, in many ways in Australian society as well, white grievance is tolerable. But non-white grievance is intolerable. But we can't talk. We can't talk. Imagine, just imagine what would happen if the same thing happened here. Let's just imagine that, I don't know, ScoMo calls an election in a couple months and a bunch of people aren't happy with how it went down. Say, I don't know, some of those numpties who, some of those white nationalist Australian guys that believe Australia needs uh, rescuing from what it is or what it was. You know, blokes with Ned Kelly tattoos, guys called Ken and Gavin. Let's just imagine that a bunch of those guys stormed Canberra trying to overthrow an election. What would the police response be, all right? What would it look like if a bunch of people, just so many people, a thousand of them got to the front door and pushed through the front doors? What would the police response be to a bunch of white guys in flannels carrying flags of the, you know, the Eureka Stockade as they ran into the House of Representatives? Now imagine the similar-sized crowd, and it was a thousand people storming into Australia's Capitol building, but if there were a bunch of guys called Zhang or Kareem, what would the police response be to that? In our country, tomorrow, let's say it happened tomorrow, what would it be? What would the media response be? What would the headlines read? Because you know, as well as I do, it would not be the same response. Okay? We, and we have to be with that in Australia. We have to address that here in our country. We have double standards. If, you know, uh, if a white person is unhappy with the way our political process is running versus someone who's not white, it's a very different response and a very different level of violence that's, that's met, they're met with. It's important that we look at that and it's important that we start digging into how we can change that because while this election was in the USA and it, it did go the other way this time around, those people who believe that man was the best leader, are not going away. Those people are still around. And unfortunately for us, because it's in English, a lot of messaging for American politics finds its way into Australian culture. They change a few words here and there. A lot of the screenshots and shit like that gets, it comes and it finds its way into Australian culture. And we have to be prepared to defend against that. It's really important. So I guess this week I'll challenge you to have a look at how you view others who don't have the same colour skin as you. Just be present. to. I mean, shit, the way I grew up, the way I was taught when I was Wolfie's age to, from, you know, maybe a little older than Wolfie, but all through primary school, God, and into high school, what I was taught about anyone that wasn't white or Anglo, I still battle those automatic thoughts today and I'm nearly 50, all right? And it's important to acknowledge that. It's shit that it's a part of you know, how I think about things automatically, but I have to challenge that stuff and think about it. Part of that challenging starts with hearing from people and listening to people who grew up in different environments than you and listening to those stories as, as valid as yours, as important as yours, to be respected as much as your story. Which brings me to my guest today. Ursula Carlson is an author and a comedian from New Zealand. She and I worked together on the second season of The Masked Singer. She is an absolute legend. I absolutely, I love working with her. 
I love how much she embraces the bumpiness of life because life isn't all strawberries and champagne and balcony sex. Life is pain. Life is disappointment. Life is frustration. Life is suffering. Life is heartbreak. Life is disappointment and, and upset as well as joy and love and kindness and, you know, watching a butterfly and a blue sky and a cool breeze on a warm day. Life is all of those things. But the way that Ursula embraces all of it is really something that I feel we could all deal with and have a bit of in our day. If you haven't seen it yet, make sure you check it out. Ursula's got a new special on Netflix. It's called Overqualified Loser. Uh, You can find her online at Ursula Carlson. Dot com. Now, just a quick a quick note. <laughs> we actually recorded this the week before there was a COVID outbreak that stopped production on The Masked Singer. So when we're talking about going into isolation, what we're talking about at the time, if you remember, if you had been in Victoria, you needed to do two weeks coming back into New South Wales. So that's the isolation we're talking about. We have no idea that we are yet to do two weeks <laughs> in our apartment, uh, separate apartments, uh, in Victoria. We didn't know that we were about to go into that ISO. Ursula's special is fantastic. Go find her online. She's the kind of woman that you just want to be, you want to be her best mate. Uh, she's just epic. I'm grateful that I can share this chat with you with the exceptional Ursula Carlson. I was talking to my neighbour about what happens when you get 120 people who are the very best at what they do. Yeah. Honestly, from our cable pullers to our, you know, to the makeup, to the lighting designers, to the riggers, to the... I I can't fucking believe it. Like, I walk out there, I'm like, we did this for 90 seconds? Yeah. Fucking... (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, let's just for a moment think about that one when Bushranger came out. They basically built a carport... In under two minutes and then deconstructed that entire carport because it wasn't just a click-in. There was drills yeah. and stuff involved, you know, and big bolts. Yeah. With, like, okay, they constructed it somewhere else, but they rigged up the whole thing and then added some fancy shit in the front of it in two minutes. Yeah. Our staging team are pretty decent. And I, and I know you don't mind a power tool. Ursula, no, so I there's don't, a, no. a fair bit of talk driver stuff going on, battery-operated, wireless talk drivers. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty sexy. I was like, oh, I wonder what they've got down there. (laughs) wonder if they need any help. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a banana show. Working on The Masked Singer is just such a a bananasly fun show to do, and particularly it's so interesting at this time, you know, to make a show that – People actually can sit down and watch together as a family. There's not many yeah. formats that can do that, you know. And we're really lucky. No. You know, it's so weird when people go, my seven-year-old wants to know, and I'm like, I have that small part in me. They go, why are you allowing your seven-year-old to watch me? And then I'm like, oh, wait, they can. You know, coming from a late-night panel format, yeah, television, and then – yeah. Even have been paying attention was like a massive handbrake for me. Like, okay, you need to calm down on the jokes here and just kind of focus. And now this one is another layer to that where you go, oh, this is geared towards little kids and families and, you know, so literally everyone in the entire family can park up 
and watch the show. Mm. So, but yeah. it's nice. It's like, you know, sort of when someone fancy comes to visit, like the Queen, you're not going to go flop everything out, are you? No, you're going to watch what you say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the benefits that we've got this year, just because COVID's done some pretty wild things. It's, it's put you in quarantine, which I do want to talk about because I'm about to go into quarantine and I need to get oh. the, the lowdown from you. Yeah. It's done a lot of things. One of those things is it, it stopped a lot of production, so a lot of the very best people off camera were available. Like yeah. a lot of the, 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 like they were normally would have been busy doing other stuff. So right. we've got a lot, but it's also meant that we can't have an audience of punters. Yeah. Our audience are they're people that we've you know to be sure of infection protocols. They're people we pay and we test, and you know they changed costumes all the time. Yeah. I'm not hating it. Do you know what? Like so much of my daily live and you know when I'm touring when I'm doing tv shows or you know big productions or whatever about 70% of that leans towards the audience not being shit you know where you go oh my god I hope it's a good audience Uh, because occasionally you do get it where a whole audience can just be real and you can feel it as soon as you walk in you go are they feeding off each other and it's not a good feed Sometimes all you need is one or two people in the room to be a bit nuts, you know, to not be afraid to laugh at stuff. And then the whole audience just kind of picks up on that and go, this is okay, we're in a safe space. But other times you get one or two people that go, you know, because there's always one person that sort of think they speak for the group. And you get that when you start doing live shows. There's one, always one person that you'll ask a question and they'll go, no, right off the front. Well, that person has been poisoning your audience before you got there. Because they talk amongst each other and especially like at a scenario like this where they meet up first and maybe have a drink and then they go in the room and then so then one person will go, oh, I wonder what will happen if this and then there's always one person who had a cousin there that was in the show before and she'll go, oh, Mm. if you do that, you'll get in trouble or no, no, you don't want to draw too much attention or whatever and then immediately people, even if they don't believe it, they're like, oh, I better tone it down. And that poisons your whole thing. But now it's like it's just us. And if we can't make it work, then it's not about the, you know, the, then we've been wrong all no. those years. <laughs> <laughs> but I do find that, I find that really interesting. I, I'm really fascinated with when we cease behaving as an individual and start behaving as a crowd. Uh, I find it really fascinating watching how my own behaviour changes when I am by myself versus when I'm around people that, I want the approval of, like my friends or something like that, some sort of deep down part of me that has a terrible relationship with my father, um, wants, you know, <laughs> wants the approval of other, other men. So I will find my, in the past, would have found myself doing things that I would later feel not good about versus then when I'm an even bigger crowd and then suddenly I'm like, I guess we're running now, you yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> like I never decided that I wanted to be running right now, but here we are. Yeah. You know, I've been in things like riots and stuff like that when suddenly a thousand people suddenly move like a school of fish and not yeah. one of them has individual choice in the matter. It's yeah. just like a group thing. And and what you're talking about is really interesting, particularly when it when it does come to comedy gigs. Yeah. I and I know this because I have, and you might have noticed this, I have a pretty big laugh. Yeah. And stand-up mates of mine go, mate, I'm, I'm filming a special. Can you come and uh, sit yeah. in the second yeah, row? Yeah, because it lifts <laughs> it. It does. Yeah. And I had that happen in Brisbane. I, I did the same thing in Brisbane. Stab, who I used to work with in Brisbane, 
Stav, who is on with Abby Coleman, who's on Have You Been Paying Attention quite a bit. Stav is the darkest, wrongest motherfucker you ever did meet. He will laugh at the darkest, darkest, darkest shit. There is no such thing as an unfunny dead baby joke to him. He is a dark man. (laughs) And so... When I did my show up in Brisbane, he was in the room and really early on, he just started laughing his ass off at the darkest of the dark stuff that I, you know, I'd done the tour for the whole country and then oh. I'm like, oh, this will be a good night. It's, I'm only realising now since you're talking about it. I was like, all right. And because Stab said, no, it's okay to laugh at the molestation stuff, then the whole room started going. <laughs> yeah. But see, then you're sort of sometimes in that mode where you go, oh, shit, I can't do normal stuff with these people. They want filth. You know, and it's like, <laughs> so you have to be careful, like, especially lineup shows. If it's late at night and the first person out does the darkest shit, and then you go out with, so my wife said, and they're all like, bring the filth. Like, they won't laugh at just normal, hey, so my kid, <laughs> my kid had a shit, um, you know, and you're far out. So that's what, you know, the audiences can either work for you or 100% against. Mm. But this is kind of not, like every now and again I'll look over to Dave and I'm like, how are you tracking, buddy? How are you going? But it's so important. Like the rest of them are laughing. And you kind of go, okay, well, in a small audience this is going well, so it should hopefully work. I'm so grateful to work with all four of you because you're all just absolute pros and you and and Husey are particularly and I've worked with people who are comedians I've worked with people who are funny people both of you are just so bloody generous and it really has to be said that how much it lifts a, a, an ensemble thing when you're working with someone who will take the energy you give them and then immediately pass the ball. Yeah. It just keeps the whole thing flying along and it's a skill and it's an art and it takes a great amount of humility because it'd be like, okay, camera's on me and I'm about to make the camera go off me because I'm going to deflect it to somebody else. Yeah. And it's great because it lifts the whole thing and I'm really grateful for it, Ursula. I really am. That's the thing, though. If you can't play well in a group because it's not your show like that's the number one like when you're in a team environment or like in a panel show or whatever you need to know that everyone else needs a speaking turn otherwise you're just gonna yeah why would you want to hang everything off your shoulders you know if we share the joy we share the responsibility you know if it's shit everyone goes could you never shut up you know, or it's all you, but, you know, I mean, it's risky. You can take that risk and go, I'm just going to floor it here and make it all about me. And then if it's successful, good on you. You just buried these other people. But if it's shit, then you better carry that. You can't then go, the audience was terrible. No, no, you're terrible. <laughs> you came to stand up kind of later in life. There are people who started way, way, way younger than than you did. You have an extraordinary view of, of the mechanics of how it all works because, like singing, you've got to hit the notes. You're like, you've got to make sure you're in key. And so comedy and, and joke construction, there's maths to it and it's the extra stuff you bring is the thing that makes someone really, really shine. You, you have an extraordinary depth of appreciation for how all that works for someone who came to it quite late in life. Was there a stand-up scene at all in South Africa when you were young? Yeah, there were, there's heaps of, I mean, a lot of sketch comedy too, but I didn't know about any right. of that because I never attended any of that. Like I'd never even been to a stand-up show till I did my first stand-up show. I didn't even know. What? Shut up. Yeah. That was the first time I was ever at a stand-up show. So 
it was not something that I had ever had any interest in, nothing. I, I didn't even know it was a thing really. Like obviously if he had said to me the week before, do you know what stand-up comedy is? I go, yeah, it's people standing up telling jokes. Like I knew all stand-up comedians, but I've never been to a show. I would have seen someone tally, you know, but it wasn't one of those things where I'm like, oh, my God, they stand up tonight. Let's have a sit down and watch it. Never. I just had no idea. I think the secret is I don't know the rules. So I just kind of plow in, you know. Like right off the right. bat, when I started, I was like, oh, this comedy festivals, that's a thing, is it? So then I thought, oh, there's one in Adelaide. I'll go over to Adelaide. So within my first year, I came over to Australia and I started working in Australia because I thought that's what everyone was doing, not knowing that I'm literally the only Kiwi here because I only started doing it in New Zealand. I'd never, you know, up until that point, up until two years ago, I'd never done stand-up in South Africa. Wow. Yeah. And that was only like a lineup show. So I just came over, started working in Australia, and I was here for about – you know, I'd come over for seven years, basically at least once a month to do shows in Australia, thinking everyone else is doing mm. it. And it was only after a few years that the others started coming. You know, they go, hey, you go over to Australia all the time. And I'm like, yeah. They go, how do I go about it? I go, you just literally go. Just pack a bag and go. And, yeah. So I just kind of – so I'm lucky in that sense. While I was building my career in New Zealand, I was building it in Australia at exactly the same pace. I was kind of climbing it, you know, as I progressed to bigger shows in New Zealand or late shows and then tally. And, but it all sort of happened on the same level. I love that you you didn't realise that that's not how it was done. So you just went, oh, yeah, I guess I'll just go do that. Yeah. And you just showed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I literally just went, oh. I fucking love it. And also what I didn't know right in the beginning, and this actually took me a few months to figure out, is you can redo material. I would write new material for every shot. I thought everyone was doing wow. that. And only after a few months, because I've been bouncing from so many shows, you know, in different towns and cities and that I would pass people and I go, you just did the same shit you did two months ago. And they go, yeah, I'm polishing it. And I didn't realise you were supposed to do that. You were supposed to take the same material and work it. So after about six months, I basically had an hour because I kept writing. So Wow. And I, I sort of kept up with that. Like I'm quite a prolific writer. I write nearly every day. I've written an hour every year since I started doing comedy. I've got like 15 one-hour shows. Not all of them good. <laughs> No, no, but it's so important. Writing every day for a comedian is the training every day for an athlete. You yeah. ju- if you stop it, you lose it. You have to fucking do it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be good. You yeah. just have to do it. That's right. That's what I always say to rookie comics when they go, can you give me advice? I go, right. And, like, everyone's like stage time, stage time. It's important. Stage time is important. But I think what this pandemic has taught us is you can go for months without being on the planks and still be all right as long as you keep writing. The minute you deviate from that, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> it's like a muscle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I am a pro athlete. I hear what you're saying, Osha. I am, you know, as you're on your bike for 100 kilometres a day, I am on my pen for 100 letters a day. <laughs> <laughs> Every character gold. Mm. <laughs> Every single character gold. <laughs> yeah. People may not know that, but like a rock and roll band or like a, a band will 
write a new song in rehearsal and then take it out and play it at that gig that night and then maybe change the verse a bit, change the chorus a bit, put an extra drum fill here or a bass line there. But then once they've got it to something that makes all the pretty girls dance and all the guys go, yeah, yeah. they'll just play that same song every night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's fine. And people will demand it. Yes. But it's tough for a comedian because you can't go out and – do that big thing that was a massive smash on YouTube in 2005. But people want to hear, are you going to be my girl from Jet? Even though the song is, you know, nearly 20 years old. You can't go out and do 20-year-old material, can you? You can't play the hits because it's done. It's it's weird like that. Yeah, it's like, and, you know, like if you go to a YouTube concert and they don't play Sunday Bloody Sunday, you leave and you go, they didn't even play it. No one walks out of my shows and goes, she didn't even do the biscuit joke. You know, if I do the biscuit joke, people go, she did the freaking biscuit joke. You know, so once it's out and I use the clip online or it's been on Netflix or Tally or whatever, then I retire it. I don't use it again, you know, and that's why I say you have to keep writing because I talk to some of and they go, oh, no, I just use it. People don't watch it. I'm like, you'd be amazed how many people actually watch it, you know, and that's why yeah. so many people go, I love coming back to your shows because it's always new. There's always, you know, even though it may not always be, as good as the last joke, although I try, I, I try, I bloody well try. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, even if it's not as popular as, as the biscuit joke, a new one will come, you know, and people always go, it's always fresh, there's always new stuff, it's always a different show, and I try and go in different directions so that, you know, people don't get tired and go, oh, it's the same shit, yeah. really. I wonder what it was like for like in a time before YouTube and in a time when there was no real cable television, someone like Stephen Wright, apparently he did, I think he did 10 years of touring on the same 45 minutes. Well, that's he didn't exactly re- what, He didn't write anything new for 10 years. That's what Ellen DeGeneres did. She had that first special that everyone knows her for that she did. She toured that for 15 years, the exact same one-hour show, and then popped it on a special, and that's why it was so good. That's why it was so polished, you know. But then young comics look at that and they, they want to emulate that. They want to, I go, you're never going to be like that right off the bat, you know. You almost mm. want to be shit in the beginning so that later on you're <laughs> yeah. good. You don't want yeah. to be good in the beginning yeah. and shit later on, <laughs> you know. You want to get all the shit out of the way. Yeah. Like the first couple of years that I did, the first year I did stand-up, I was like bulletproof. I'm like, this is great. I'm good at this. And then the second year I sucked so bad for a whole 12 months. I was like, I should stop. Like I should hang up the gloves. This is done. I've, you know, I've had too many knocks in the head at this point. But then I sort of realized what I was doing wrong and, you know. Which was? Which was the audience feed off you. You don't realize how they pick up your energy. You can't imagine. Like I just realized at some point, like I can't just have a whole year of shit audience. You know, this is me. This is my fault. Because if I go out there, my energy is bad or low or dark or whatever, the audience all of a sudden, that's why I realize when I go see a comic, sometimes I go, or even if you watch a movie or TV show and you go, I don't like this person. Or you walk out and you go, that was exhausting. And you don't know why. It's because you're feeding off that person standing there talking to you because they are 100% invested in you. They're not on their phones. They're not anything. They're just looking at you. And feeding off you. So if you're high energy and you're positive, 
Because they can spot a fake. It's like they have no distractions. They're just looking at you. So if you're being fake, they can pick up on that. So I just went out and I started enjoying it. And the more I enjoyed it, the more they enjoyed it. So I just started taking it as like a conversation with a mate, you know, just like me and a friend. But it's a room full of friends. And once I started doing that, it changed overnight. And I'm like, this is it. This is how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be enjoyable. That's actually not everyone listening is going to become a stand-up and probably I'd be surprised if one person of all the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are listening are going to become a stand-up. But every single person listening can understand what you just said, which is, I have a responsibility into how this interaction going. Mm. You can't be Ben Folds and have five ex-wives and then write all these albums and be like, it was all them. No, Ben, you're the common denominator, mate. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you went after a particular kind of person then you were a particular kind of man and that's why the relationship didn't work. But we have to take responsibility. We have to take responsibility for our energy and our verbiage and our words into an interaction with someone. Like, is our side of the street clean? And if yeah. our side of the street isn't clean, then we've got a role in why things might not have gone well. Yeah, and more importantly, then you have to change it. You can't be baking the same cake and go, why is this chicken tasting weird? Because you're not making chicken. You're baking a cake. <laughs> you need to change what you're doing. <laughs> you <know>? like, <laughs> people don't change their behavior. They go, I don't know why it's still not working. I'm like, what have you changed? And then you listen you go, oh, you've done nothing different, <laughs> but you're expecting a different outcome. So you need to change your behavior. But at one point, that means, oh, fuck, now I've got to actually look into something that I'm so used to doing. I have to, you know, it's a bit heavy at first to lift, but then it's also extraordinarily powerful because be like, yeah. I don't have to wait for anybody else. I'm the one that can sort this out. I can have control yeah. over the situation and I can do my part to make sure this is better. And that is involving not only how I use the words I use, my energy, but also the people that I choose to engage with. You know, if you have this string of bad relationships, you're the person that's picking them. (laughs) Yeah, 100%, 100%. And it's like the minute you start, I mean, that is, it's actually so great. The minute you realize I'm fucked, but I have the power to change it. It's like you're the one banging your head against the wall. The wall ain't going to move. You have to move. Just find the opening of the door. It's that easy. But, you know, no one can force you into it. But that's so good when you go, oh, hang on. If I make the change, even if it's shit, because that's what I said to you, like when I just started, like, you know, you're broke. It's amazing how you can scale down. When I say to people, like, God, I hate my job or I hate this, so I go, I go, so stop doing it. I go, yeah, easy for you to say, I can't afford that. I go, it's amazing how quickly you can realize you don't need a five or six bedroom house, you know. You and your missus can move into a studio flat for a year, sort your shit, and then move on from there, you know. And if anything, this pandemic has taught us that we can do with less. Everyone has lost money in this. No one is walking out a winner unless you own Amazon. No one is walking out of this a winner. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we're all taking a hit at the moment. So it's like, yeah. we can, you can change. It's shit when you look at yourself and you go, yeah, I'm the problem here. But, you know, then that's the beauty of it. You can change it. You're absolutely right. And you, you definitely sound like you're someone that has had to find that lesson out yourself. From what oh. I know about you, uh, I've been to your country of birth. Your home country is New yeah. Zealand, but I've been to South Africa yeah. a number of times now. Yeah. Uh, I've been there with Audrey and I've been there by myself and I ad- adore it. Like It's a country not without its challenges, uh, 100%, yeah. but it is an extraordinary 
extraordinary place with just such vibrant, full, bountiful energy that it, you just got to go and just be a part of it because it's just, it's so fucking alive. Yeah, 100%. That country. Honestly, outside, you have to go. Don't listen to the bullshit. Just go. Just go see it. Yeah. But I've had a few South Africans on my show and um, I've spoken to a number, two, two of them are mental health professionals. <laughs> <laughs> and I am the opposite of that. <laughs> one's, a, one's, one's a psychologist, one's a psychiatrist. But I, I find it interesting to talk about because I think it's important to talk about. I'm older than you by a number of years. Uh, but Only just. Oh, fuck off. Yeah, I'm 45. Oh, Okay. Yeah. I'm a couple of years older than you are, but I cheat because I don't drink. I just look great, mate. <laughs> you look amazing. So, But I I knew what was happening in South Africa from afar, and then later in life we were taught as kids how bad it was. Apartheid is a horrible thing and it's really bad. And there was all these movies in, this, in the 80s, you know, Lethal Weapon even talked about how bad apartheid was and there was all these songs on the radio and the specials wrote a song and then there was all these songs about Sun City and like it was in the popular culture about apartheid. And then years later I discovered, oh, the the apartheid was based on Queensland's racial separation laws from the 1800s. Yeah. You know, that shit had its origins in Australia. (laughs) So, you know, it's a grim thing to, to understand but... I think it's important to talk about what happens when you other a part of the community so much to the point where it's not even a benign systemic othering. It's a written-in, hard-boiled, rusted-on, militarised systemic othering and what it does for people on both sides of that equation. When was the first time as a kid in South Africa you realised that something was going on? Well, it would have been early 80s. Because I grew up in a, well, at this point, I was living in a town called Schluban, which there was like five houses. It's a really small town and it's basically just a train station and the mine manager would live there. And my mum worked for the train station. My dad worked on the mine. And then my mum would hide people in our little granny flat. And because it's the past laws back then, uh, you weren't allowed if you're a black person in an area without your pass and at six o'clock they had to be out. But my mum would hide people and then the next day she would drive them to somewhere. Like I was like four or five years old, so I didn't understand. But my brother and sister were in school, so I was with my mum and she would go, if anyone wants to know who's staying the night, it's your auntie and your uncle. Okay, so I just knew, and then she would drive them out places. So then I realised something is different, something is other, you know, but I didn't realise till years later. Was she hiding white people? No, black people. Right. They were trying to unite with family, but they sort of, you know, when you have to go, I'm not sure how it worked, but, like, if they had to unite with family or they were hiding from the cops because my mom was an act of protest and actually in the 80s because she was against apartheid we were going to get kicked out of South Africa and my mom was looking into we would have to exile basically and we were going to come to Australia 
Right. And then um, the tides started changing and they tried to get, you know, like this is when they started talks with Nelson Mandela to try and get him out to try and calm everyone down because that's when Gontu sees where the military wing of the ANC was really firing up and they were trying to calm everything down. But the protests had just escalated at that point. So you're a little kid and you know that there's there's people you haven't met before staying the night and they're eating food yeah. and you don't recognise them but they seem nice and then mum scoots off in the morning in the car because maybe they're trying yeah. to travel to meet someone that's more hours away than they've got a pass to be outside for yeah. to go and meet yeah. them to say hi to their, their, their family. Right? Yeah, and they're lying flat in the car and I have to sit in the back seat and there's people at my feet under the blanket because, like, a white woman was not allowed to be in the car with someone of color. Like there was all these different rules that I didn't even understand. And I just do not talk to anyone. Do not tell Mm. anyone. It's your auntie and your uncle, you know, that kind of scenario. But I I can't remember all of it, but like if I say to my mom now, I didn't even know about us have, you know, nearly being kicked out of South Africa because of the protests and stuff that she was involved in. It was only when I, I moved to the States in 1999 and um, that's when I said to my mum, you know, potentially, I don't know if I'm coming back, I'm going to go study, you know, we'll see how this goes. And she go, I go, I hope you're not upset that I'm leaving because she's so patriotic, you know. Mm. I go, I hope you're not upset. I'm not turning my back on South Africa. She goes, oh, mate, we nearly moved to Australia because we were going to get kicked out of South Africa. So you do what you need to do. Yeah. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. Like even now, recently, because I'm on all these pages, you know, South Africans living abroad, South Africans living in New Zealand, South Africans in Australia, whatever. And um, it was Nelson Mandela's birthday and people were posting photos of Nelson Mandela, you know, with his birthday. And then, of course, it kicked off, you know, as it, as it would. People go, why would you be celebrating this terrorist? And they said, you know, like he blew up all these places. And I said, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Yeah, he yeah. was head of the ANC. Yeah, he started in Contesis with the military wing. But on that thread, people were, you know, sort of defending each other and defending people that don't even know, like if one person said something, another one would go. Because it's very South African where you go, oh, fuck you up. You know, oh, you know, it's sort of just a saying, but they, they're really defensive, you know. And I go, on this thread, you're defending people you don't even know. Whereas here's a man whose whole people, you know, everyone that is different, that is, you know, that is him, his family, like his friend, everyone is being discriminated against, is saying you can't move um, where you want to go. You don't have any freedom. You don't have any say. You have no voice. We will take that. And you expect them to just do nothing? I said, I will start a military wing if my neighbour flicks dog shit over the fence, you know. Never mind being oppressed, being murdered, being shuffled off the land that you own, no, that, that's not for you. Like being made nothing, of course you're going to start a military wing. I'd be disappointed if you don't. So, you know, it's still a bit of a trigger point. I'm sure it is. I just want to just re- rewind for a second because you mentioned that yes. your mum, yes. and this is the thing a lot of people may not understand. You said your mum was so patriotic and yeah. this is also a woman that is active 
actively protesting at a time when it's probably very, very, very dangerous for her to protest. That there's yeah. people, like not a ranty Facebook person, but a fucking neighbour with a gun who goes, oh, yeah, that Carlson woman, she makes a bit too much noise. She hides people. Like farming accident, hunting accident. Oopsie daisy, yeah. she's gone. Very A very real risk that she's taking yeah. being so isolated out. Because you were out in the bush, weren't you? You were up near Kruger, yeah, yeah. weren't you? You were yeah, yeah. Wild, miles yeah. away, right? Can you talk to me about what it is to be patriotic, to love your country, but fundamentally disagree with the system that is currently in power? Oh, that's easy. It's like you love your dad, even though he's a very flawed man. You go, oh, my dad is a grace of drunk and I love him. So that's what it is to love a flawed country, to go, I love this country for what it should be, for what it needs to be, not for what it's doing. You've made me laugh all week. You just made me fucking cry. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't take the love away just because it's fucked, you know. It's so true, though. Fucking hell, it's so true. And it's the same shit everywhere because I lived in America for 10 years and it's the same thing. People were like, I remember it was when George W. Bush was in power and there was a particular neighbour of mine who would, he had a son who was deployed to Iraq. I can't imagine how horrible that would be. And he's like, listen to what the fucking president says. Just do what the fucking president says. Clean up after your dog and we'll just be fine. It's like, I don't agree. Like I'm paying tax by this point. It's like, I, I don't agree with what my tax yeah. dollars are doing in this country, but I still love this country enough to have left my own country to come and live in it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I yeah. fell out of love with that country. I fell out of love with America. But it's the same here, you know, like there's so many things that I, I would do fucking anything for Australia. I wasn't born here. I don't give a shit. I would do anything for this country. And there's so much about it that I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, that's it. Like every country has it. Every country yeah. has its flaws, you know, and – it's impossible, like, if you think you're going to find the perfect country, the perfect, you better fucking buy an island and go sit on it because nowhere is perfect. You can make your surrounds as comfortable and as perfect as you like, but then know that there will be flawed individuals, flawed laws, you know. But then a lot of times, and this is what I say to, you know, and my kids are still little, but I try and get this in them, I go, Sometimes you just have to look at something and go, all of this looks a hell of a lot like none of my fucking business. You don't need to tackle every argument that's out there. You know, sometimes you can just go, oh, this is not my business. I'm going to go somewhere where I can make a positive change. You don't need to fight every battle. There are enough soldiers to do that. Facebook have taught us that. Oh, this looks like a whole lot of none of my fucking business. That's a fucking great. I want to put that on a coffee cup. You need to know that when you're on Facebook, when people start ranting about something that you've done, you go, oh, you guys don't need me for this. I'm not going to change anyone's mind here today. This is a lot of no. none of my fucking business. And just close the page yeah. and walk away from it. You're not going to change your mind. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. No one is ever going to change their mind in the comment section of a post on the internet. YouTube, Facebook, yes. Instagram, a news article. You are never going to convince someone yes. to feel differently about what it was that made them originally write the first fucking thing they wrote. They're never going to yeah. go, you know what, Ursula, you make a good point there. I guess if I was living under that kind of oppression, I'd organise my mates to fight back a bit as well. Jolly yes. good job. Lecker. No, they're yes. going to fucking double right down. No one's yeah. ever going to change their mind in public. No one will ever change their fucking mind in public. They change yeah. their mind when they're in the middle of a shower or when they're walking the dog or when they're cleaning up after the kids, when they're picking up a toy and putting in the box. At that point, they'll go, oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when they change their mind. They do yeah. not change their mind in public. So don't fucking try. No. no. <laughs> and never- sometimes you have to go, arguing with you is like telling dogs should not to stink. It is never going to change. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> I'm wasting valuable fucking energy here. I'm just going to duck out of this one. <laughs> I'm going to go bake cookies for the kids. What was it like? Because let me, let me do some sums here. You would have been in your, like, your late teens when things were really fucking kicking off towards the end of apartheid. One of the things I adore about South Africa, and I think it was there was a meeting in 1975 between like there was one of those one of those rooms that we think doesn't exist but did, and it was a, yeah. like a high Chesterfield sofas, and it was the guy who ran all the mines, the guy who ran all the railways, the guy who ran all the ports, and there was five people sitting around smoking cigars, and there was a lot of unrest going on all about the uh, railway workers wanted to unionise. Yeah. And because they were all like, we can't fucking move any of this stuff we're digging out of the ground without the railway workers, you've got to sort it out. And they all said, look, if we allow these railway workers to unionise, that will ultimately, if we allow organisation, it will, because railway workers are all black, this will ultimately lead to the dismantling of our country. And these five people went, okay, then let's do it. So they didn't wait for the government. They went, we know whatever's happening is not great. Let's do it. And then it was just under 20 years later when it happened. What was it like as the fabric of the community and the society that you had grown up in started to so radically, radically change in the late 80s, early 90s? What was it like to live under? Well, I mean, for me, it was very exciting because, I mean, I went to so many sit-ins and protests and, you know, and it was great. And even now with my kids, I take them, like, we went to London two years ago. We we went to protests there, one accidentally a vegan protest we didn't know. And the other one was, you know, to free Israeli soldiers because I think it's so important and I love that. I turned 18. Oh, I was 18 with the first free and fair elections, right? So up until that point, my mother didn't vote. She would not vote. If everyone couldn't vote, we're not voting. No one's voting till everyone can vote. So I voted for the first time with my mother in that election. It was amazing. And even my friends from high school, we would go, oh, there's a protest this weekend. Like, that's all we did. You know, we went out protested and then had a few babies. It was great. Like you felt like I'm changing shit. 
you know, it's a very freeing experience. If you've ever been to a protest and then at the back of that you go, fuck, man, this is going to happen. And then especially when you see it changing and you go, we were part of that, you know, and that's what I say to my kids now too. Like we go everywhere. Like if there's a women's march or a Black Lives Matter march or whatever, my kids are coming. We're making posters in the kitchen and then we're going. We're going to – because I, I always say to them, I go, if we can't, talk for people who don't have a voice, then we're wasting our voice. You're basically yelling into a wind tunnel. We have to stand up for people who can't. And even online, if I see someone's, like, I'll say something, you know, and I think it's so important if we raise our kids to say, don't tolerate this. Bad shit only happens because we tolerate it. But if you speak up, if you see me being bullied or undermined and you say nothing, you're in the same boat as the bully. You know, you have to go, hey, that shit's not okay. Pull that back, you know. And that's literally all you have to say. I'm not asking you to get into a fist fight. I'm just saying don't be silent. So that's what I'm teaching them. I love it. Talk talk to me about being raised by a mum who was so politically active, so anti-apartheid, so trying to teach her children there's a better way, yeah. there's a better way for everyone, and yet still being the victim of violence that was a result of the kind of inequality that was created by the system you lived under and then still going out and protesting after that violence happened to you. There's only violence and to this day, this is my argument, you will only have crime and violent crime if the system is broken. Unemployment is so high and oppression, you know, like if, if you live in a country that don't acknowledge you as a human being, right, and you then go, well, I don't have food for my kids. You tell me even now you, as a father, you will not steal or you will not rob or you will not defeat your kids. I will do anything. So that's the same. I'm like, you know, you kind of have to expect that. If unemployment's so high, if you do oppress people and you expect no comeback from that, you're a fool. So you can't blame the people because the system's broken. If the car breaks down, you don't go, this is your wife's fault. No, the car broke down, you know, so – the, you know, whatever results from that, expect it. You sort of almost have to wait for it. But with my mum, and this is what I try and say to people when they go, because I get a lot where people go, especially in Australia in the beginning when I just started coming over, people would just assume, oh, you're from South Africa, so you must be a racist. And then people feel very comfortable to whip out their racist shit. And I, I saw that in America too. I lived in Texas. and Oh, fuck. Yeah. I know. I lived on a military base in Texas. So people would be very comfortable to just flop out their racist shit. And I'm like, uh, you're barking up the wrong fucking woman here. Because there were so many people in South Africa protesting against the government. And that's why it changed, because the people wouldn't tolerate it. People were fighting against the government and I don't know if it's like a, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, but like literally everyone in our circle had the same view, you know, like this is bullshit. No one wanted it. 
you know, or the majority of people are like, this is horseshit. We need to change this. Like if you attend a protest, you go, here's everyone of every walk of life, of every color of, it was literally the minority pushing this stuff. But unfortunately that minority had money and that's why it stayed in for so long, I think. But it only changed because people demanded it, you know. So I never knew any different. Like, I didn't really know a lot of hard-out racists or anything, you know, growing up. Or even, you know, homophobes. I didn't know that was a thing. Like, you know, because in the circle there was a lot of gay people, but, of course, that was also really frowned on in South Africa because it's a very religious country, you know, and it was illegal. Yeah. So when I came out, it was like a total non-event, really. I could not have asked for a more, you know, sort of like I always say my brother and my mom who would be, you know, sort of most people, that's who they're scared of, you know, sort of the top of their family. They couldn't be more pro-gay if they tried. Like I always say they're more pro-gay than I am. I'm like, calm down, guys. Jeez. They'd be in the front <laughs> of the pride parade. <laughs> it's like. My mom went to Pride Parades before I even came out because, of course, she was like, this needs to be not illegal. <laughs> you know, my mom's in the Pride Parade. I'm like, oh, I'll come with you. <laughs> I'll come <laughs> The thing that I really envy about South Africa is that white South Africans that I'm friends with are so fucking proud of their country. Yeah. They will tattoo their country's flag on their body and go, no, yeah. we fucking did it. You know, we we yeah. changed what we had and we created this thing. Sure, it's not perfect, but we are yeah. so proud of it. And I guess, you know, this is just my take on the situation is that we here in Australia, because I'm sure from the people I've spoken to who who come from your country, to know that you are living what you have is because of the extraordinary oppression of another part of the community. There's a shame and a disgust and there's an ickiness that comes with, sure, I have the upper hand in this society. I have privileges that other people yeah. don't, but it feels horrible to have it because of what it means to the other part of our country. Yeah. There was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You, you, you pushed through and the, the Lego pieces all came out the other side and you, you're rebuilding it still. I mean, obviously, it's a, yeah. it's a country that is still not without its challenges, as I mentioned, but it is it's what it could have been. It could have been awful, but yeah. it, it wasn't. And yet here in yeah. Australia, we still live with this shame. We still live with this shame that we in this country have what we have because we took it. We stole it. Yeah. The sovereignty was never ceded. We didn't acknowledge the actual technological advancement of the people that lived here. We didn't acknowledge yeah. the farming practices. We didn't acknowledge the architecture. We pretended that none of that existed. We painted this picture of an indigenous culture. It was a man holding a spear, standing on one leg, and that was all. They were just a poor hunter-gatherer people, simple as yeah. we were. We were softening the pillow, the word is. We softened the pillow for their eventual demise, and we, we gave them a gift by allowing them to have European civilization. But we all know that's fucking bullshit, and we live yeah. with the shame of that, and we can't get past it. And I, I really feel it's holding us fucking back. In this country. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. And I really envy that. I envy the South Africans that have that. Like, yeah, we faced it. We looked it in the eye and went, yep, that did happen. Yeah. (laughs) So my brother and I talk about this a lot, right? Mm -hmm. The difference, I think, between always having an open wound versus starting the healing is some countries like Australia, you go, people accept each other's cultures and you know there's a lot of acceptance but 
this is where the difference because acceptance is not good enough. We should be celebrating each other's differences and not just accepting. Because accepting says, I'll allow it. Whereas celebrating the differences means, oh, my God, you bring something amazing to the table. You know, like if you can't celebrate each other's differences, the minute you say, I accept you're different, then you're saying, it's okay, bring it. Let's have a look. I accept it. But if you go, I celebrate it. I want to know more. Let's teach each other. That's when you have total inclusivity. That's when you go, we're sort of celebrating each other's differences. You can be different to me. That's good. And I'm different to you. That's good too. And that's what we need. You know, otherwise we have a fucking vanilla society, you know. We need that. We need, you know, and the same with immigrants, people coming in, people not, you know, celebrating immigrants to a country. It's like you don't want to celebrate these people coming in, but they bring such a valuable part. If you don't have that, then even just looking at Melbourne, you go take all those sections away, take the Italian section, take the Greek section, take all of those sections away. You just want this fucking vanilla block in the middle. You need all these flavors around it. Otherwise, it's just boring as shit, mate. Don't, don't be fucking with my Ethiopian restaurant. Don't. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Those same people go, I don't want fucking refugees here, but God, the food's good. Food's great. <laughs> you know, like those are the restaurants you go to on your Uber Eats menu. I was like, dude, mate. you can't be having all of it and then go, I, I want their food. I want the rich culture that they have, but I don't want them here. <laughs> you can piss right off. Briggs is a, a greatest, amazing fucking rapper. Briggs is an indigenous yeah, bloke I know, from uh, I know. Yeah, incredible. He's like, like, don't be fucking with my food court, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't fuck yeah. with the food court. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine if you don't let people in, they'd just be the roasty in the food court? Oh, That's it. Boring. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be having roast potatoes, mate. No, man, I want my Vietnamese pho. I don't want it now. <laughs> yeah. It. yeah. Give me the exactly. soupy noodle flavors. Give me the ramen. Oh, God, I tell you, man, S- seriously, being vegan's fucking easy. Celiac is yeah. a motherfucker because you can't yeah. eat Japanese food. I fucking oh, miss man. Japanese food so much. There was a ramen that Audrey and I used to get in Sydney, Yasaka mm. ramen. It is so fucking legit. It's like what we had in Kyoto. It's so legit and it was just, I'm dream like w- before I had to go get my biopsy when they had to, you know, they do the channel tunnel yeah. procedure to see if you yeah. have, you know, they go in, go in both ends to do the biopsy to see if you've got celiac disease. So romantic. It yeah. is, I know, right? I went, where it was like, they said, I want you to go out. I said, I know it's going to cause you a bit of upset. I want you to go out and just eat a shitload of gluten because I really need you to get flared up so we can take a sample of your diodenum. Yeah. So Audrey and I, we went out and I'm like, this is the final night. The final one ever yeah. we went out, and my very last meal of gluten was uh, Yasaka ramen with this amazing noodles that they make that day. And oh fuck, it was so oh, good! And nice. I can't imagine my country with boring, stodgy, boring British, boring potatoes, meat, steamed everything, boiled yeah. veggies. Yeah. It's no. awful. <laughs> but you know, I find it so. I want to wear a T-shirt that says immigrant all the time because especially in Australia, for the record, I've met more races than I've met in South Africa growing up there. You know, I left South Africa at 32 and in my first trip to Australia, I'm like, oh, this is the most racist country I've ever been to in my life. 
I mean, it is settling. This was like in 2009, and I feel there's definitely been a change, you know, or maybe people know me now and they don't don't bring it up anymore. But people will go, there's fucking immigrants everywhere. I go, I'm an immigrant. I'm like, yeah, but you know what I mean. I go, no, I don't, because I want them to say their shit. You know, I look like you, so I'm not as offensive to you. The minute they look different, they go, fucking immigrant. I'm like, dude. You can't say shit like that. Or the worst is the refugees where I'm like, these people are fleeing their countries because they're being slaughtered, right? You see the videos of these people holding their kids. They're on a boat for four days holding a child. You walk through the mall holding your child and you feel how that feels, yeah? Like now for four days on a boat where you can't move, you can't put the kid down, you can't even change them, you know? That's how desperate they are. Like, if we can't give them safe haven and go, you're safe here, we won't be slaughtering you anytime soon, you know. Isn't that the dream of every parent is to give your kids the best? And, you know, even if they go, you might not be the best, but at least you're not going to slaughter us. Even if you put us in a cage for a few years, at least my kid is safe, you know. If they're willing to take that, why can't you just open your fucking heart for a minute, but then you get all these people, how can we let the refugees in? Meanwhile, our elderly, our elderly is doing just fine. It's two different budgets of the government. You fuck with. Like, the government's not going, well, we let one refugee family in, get Mildred out of the home. That's not how it works. Like, Mildred is fine in the home. Her pension, is everything, all of that is on a different budget. We, as part of the UN, need to take refugees in. That is the agreement that we've made. Yeah. You halfway. It's fucking shameful what our country does for refugees. It's, it's, it's fucking horrible. And look, let's just yeah. hope that with enough motion and enough agitation and enough people going to protest and making signs, we can't figure something out. You live in New Zealand now, which is a very, very different situation to anywhere else in the world. And I'm always fascinated with New Zealand there. And I was thinking about this morning as I was, I was grinding my coffee up and I was thinking about what is it? There's a couple of countries in the world that bang for buck. They have such extraordinary cultural influence upon the world. Ireland, four million people, four fucking million yeah. people. That's it. But look at the cultural influence they have upon the world, all right? Israel, yeah. six million, I think, five million, maybe. Yeah. It's just colossal influence upon the world. New Zealand, four million, five well, million we're people. Five million now. We just cracked five million. Thank hey, you. Hey, high five. During high quarantine, five for you. We, yeah. <laughs> we five. cracked five million. And look at the influence that you have upon the world. Like, what is it that New Zealand gets right, Ursula? You know what? It's celebrating each other's differences. We're not accepting it. We're celebrating it. And also, you know, people get involved. Like if shit's not right, they're getting out there, they're protesting, they, you know, and the government listens. That's the difference, you know, like I think I've signed more petitions and attended more protests since I've been in New Zealand. And not just for New Zealand issues. Like we will protest for shit going on around the world. Like, Oh, you're going to shoot up a nightclub in Orlando full of gay people? We'll, we'll protest. We'll have a march for gay rights. We'll march for anything. And it's, it's almost like a community event where we go, oh, there's a march this weekend for this or there's a, you know, and we all go. And you know what? Because my mum lives in New Zealand now too. She lives in Christchurch. 
she goes to marches, she takes my nephews, because she lives with my sister, and they all go. They're all making the posters, and it's almost like now the next generation is doing that. It's lovely. I, I love seeing it. When you see your Prime Minister, who I'm proud of, <laughs> what, does she, what does she do right? It can't be that hard to do what she's doing. What is it that Jacinda Ardern does right, in your opinion? She's empathetic. Like, if you look at the mosque shootings, right, the, the murder of these people praying, right, so she gets a lot of shit because she went there and everyone goes, oh, she just went out hugging some people. It's not that. You can see, even when you saw the footage of it, and when you've been to Christchurch and you know the, what the people are like there, it's a bruised community, you know. They've been f- bruised by the earthquakes, by all the stuff that's been happening in Christchurch. They are still rebuilding, but it's like when you're there, you realise it's a tender community, you know. Like it's very much a community. Like everyone there has each other's welfare at heart. Like they care for each other. And, I mean, I go down to Christchurch at least once a month, right, and you kind of feel that. And even when the mosque shootings, it was like, a collective <gasps> happened in the whole city. So then when she went down there, because she's so approachable too. So, and I mean, when you see people that are so defeated, like imagine for yourself, you're standing outside the mosque where someone in your family was just slaughtered for praying. You know, you would be devastated. So she just went and and. Everyone was just hugging. The whole community was just standing there holding each other. And she just walked out and, and people were hugging her and everyone was crying. And And I think when you see that from your leader and you go, she's like us. She's bruised by this too. You know, she took the hit and she can feel it. Not just, you know, sort of, walk. yeah, I mean, we're going to come back from this. Sometimes you need the team talk. You know, you need that halftime kick up the ass. But other times you just need a hug. And I think knowing the difference of when to do what is what she nails. She knows when to say, like with coronavirus, she went in hard and fast and she kicked us up the ass. She goes, you stay home. This is for all of us. We're a team. Like she gave us the team talk. And with the White Island eruption, with the volcano that killed all those people, the same thing. You know, she knew when we needed a hug and she knew when we needed to kick up the ass, and that's the difference. What you're describing when I think about other leaders around the world, that's what really sets great leaders apart is that ability to display empathy and that there's this idea, you know, and unfortunately it's happening at the moment, um, there's a strong man kind of the rise of the strong man leader is happening. This idea that empathy is a sign of weakness. Empathy is a sign of fucking strength. I feel so confident yeah. in my power. I feel so confident in my ability to lead. I feel so confident in my dominance of this situation that I can show yeah. kindness and vulnerability in this point because yeah. I know that I can back it up, you know, and that's, yeah. uh, you know, this idea that you have to be a hard motherfucker who doesn't ever cry or doesn't ever get moved. All that does is just harden the community, you know. It just hardens people's hearts. and That's why suicide numbers go up because people feel like they can't express themselves, like they can't have a break, you know. Like it's okay to have a meltdown every now and again to go, you know what, I can't fucking cope. Mm -hmm. I'm not okay. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say, you know what, 
right now, I need you to just hug me for a bit. Just yeah. hold me for a bit. And especially now when we can't, you have to figure out a way to hold people without touching them. Socially distance hugging, that's the hardest thing at the moment, you know, and people are struggling. I see friends of mine who live alone, who's isolating alone. I mean, I'm here in Melbourne for three and a half weeks isolating alone, and I know it's just for three and a half weeks, but for some people, this is their life, you know. They just have been alone for months. Yeah, Husey said the other day he knows someone who hasn't legally been she hasn't legally been able to hug another person since March. Like broke broke my heart when he said that. Yeah, Yeah. fucking broke my heart. You had to quarantine when you came into Australia. I'm going to have to quarantine when I leave Melbourne. Same. I really fuck off. Really, you got to quarantine back in Auckland or in Sydney? No, in Auckland. When I get into Auckland, I'm in quarantine again for two weeks. So we'll be we'll be facetiming. Oh, you bet. (laughs) So. God, you've got to do it on both ends. So, uh, okay. So, I, yeah. I go into quarantine on the day of my our infant son Wolfgang's first birthday. Yeah. And what what's quarantine like? What am I looking forward to? As little do I need to know. Well, you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of thinking time. You're gonna get to know yourself really well because you can't leave the room. Ah. So it's just you and your good self in a room. Um, and you know what. I actually didn't mind it because I don't mind my own company. Like I didn't – so what I did, and you need to pace yourself, right? So the first quarantine, because I knew I had another, so I've got a month all up. The only thing I watched on television was the news. And now my two weeks now is going to be filled with Netflix and movies and crap like that. But I took a puzzle, which I didn't complete. It's back in the box. So I'm going to take that out again. But it's not as bad – I think the worst thing for me was having to have the COVID test, which I hadn't had up until then, and I was panicking about that. And then that was a total non-event, you know. It wasn't as bad. It's uncomfortable. It's not even uncomfortable. It's a weird sensation. Mm. While they're digging around in your nostril, they're like, why are you in my brainstem? But it's not painful or anything. It just makes your eyes water, you know. But just lean into it. Cry. You're alone. And then, you know, I enjoyed the bubble baths and stuff. So I prepared. I took bubble bath and I took a candle. I All those times where you go, I just wish I was alone. I just need five minutes by myself. I sort of leaned into that and went, I'm alone now. So I read about five books. I had bubble baths every day. Some days I had two, you know. Yeah. Sydney has a lot of water at the moment. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I lit a candle. I don't even know if that's legal because they, they don't want any fire risk because, of course, so if you're uh, official at a Sydney hotel, that never happened. Yeah, and I, I gave myself facials and I FaceTimed friends and I spoke to aunties in South Africa that I haven't spoken to in ages, you know. So all that stuff that you go, oh, my God, I have no time for this, do that. Make a list of the things that you don't have any time for normally and do it during that two weeks but you can get care packages delivered you can get like I got so many packages delivered at one point that I think the hotel saw I was the storage room there was just so much coming in people were sending me stuff and I have a few friends who are chefs in Sydney and they would drop stuff off like oh I just made a cake or I just made this and it was great I had the best time all right, so I'm not. It's almost like I'm in more isolation here in Melbourne because I can't get anything delivered to the building I'm in. But you're saying in Sydney, like you can just get shit delivered to your room. 
all the time. Oh fuck, I'm into it then. Because I was, because you know, like I, I, I have to cook for myself when I'm away. You know, you can say to them, "What's your dietary requirement?" They'll bring that whatever your dietary requirement. Like they actually look after you really well. Because I said, as soon as we checked in, they said you can order Uber Eats, you can order groceries. I didn't do any of that because they brought three squares to my room every day and then they would come and take it away again. So there's no dishes, there's no cooking. I was like, oh, this is this is like a mum holiday <laughs> sent from Jesus himself. <laughs> this is gross. So you got all, all the sleep-ins, because you've got, you've got little kids, so all the sleep-ins you've been owed for the last five years just showed up. Yeah, mate. It's like, oh, here it is. Oh, see, here's another one for tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> I just, <laughs> and what I would do is I would put the kids FaceTime on my iPad yeah. to their iPad and then they would just run around. Sometimes they'd leave me on the couch for a bit or, you know, I'd be in the tent with a dog. And But then it would feel like I'm with them, yeah. you know, even though I don't need to pick up the Lego. So, <laughs> yeah, as long as we talk to people on the outside – but yeah. then just, you know, remind yourself the whole time if you go, God, I'm so, I'm so alone. Then go, I'm so alone. <laughs> so, <laughs> How did you manage the, it, it's called a wormhole when you just leave the webcam on. So they're, you know, they're just there. Yeah. And it, you're not actually having a conversation. Yeah. You know, I'm just making dinner and then I'm in the room and then I'm not in the room and they're making dinner and then they're in the room. Yeah. And not in the room. So it's, it's really nice. But I'm really aware that I'm not the one taking the dogs out, you know, to picking up dog shit. I'm not picking up all the, the, the poo. I'm not looking after the kids. I'm not driving one to dancing. I'm, I'm Audrey's at home doing all the heavy lifting. And as far as she's concerned, yeah. and rightly, I'm having a fun TV cycling cooking holiday right now because that's all I'm doing yeah. is I'm making fun TV, riding yeah. my bike and cooking rad food. As far as she's concerned, yeah. I'm on holiday. I'm on vacation. And when you yeah. are getting broken newborn baby sleep, also looking after teenager, that's just fucking like motherfucker, I'm by myself here. How do you manage that? How do you manage yeah. that, that pressure? You don't. You just go, as soon as I'm back, then you just need to step it up real hard out, like especially when the kids were baby babies, you know. So as soon as I go there, I'll take the kids and, you know, I'll even take them camping, you know, sort of backyard camping, but kind of remove them from whatever situation they're in or yeah. we'll go for – I'll take the dog and everyone in the back of the ute and we'll go to the beach and go four by fouring and just for a whole day, just be at the beach and it's just, you know, yeah. me and the kids and the dog and, you know, so sort of then that's me for the next two, three weeks, every day. Yeah. And it all balances out, doesn't yeah. it? It's like when you get back then – then the holiday starts for her and you just make sure that you sort of nurture that side of it and go, you are appreciated, you know, I do see what you're doing, you know. Because, I mean, again, if you don't do what you do, they can't do what they do, you know. Then potentially both of you would be at work right now or trying to work and juggle, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. As long as you make sure you swing the balance back so it all levels out again. You can't come back and go, well, I'm tired too, you know. I had to sit on my ring for two weeks. No. Nah. <laughs> There's no – as soon as you hit that door, it's game on. <laughs> and then it's all you all the time for two weeks till the balance is sort of – you know, till she comes back and goes, you probably want some time for yourself for a bit. And meanwhile, you've been gagging for it since day four, but you don't say that. Yeah. 
you just kind of power through and go, this could have been you, because it is hard. It's hard to have the kids 24-7. Oh, man. You know, in my case now for eight weeks. Oh, Eight fuck. weeks. Oh, man. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. I can't. It's actually when you, as you're describing it, I'm like, I cannot wait to just go, all right, that's it. I'm not doing anything but looking after these kids. Yeah. And go, honey, go do your thing. Off you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 yeah, I, but I'm, also... The pre-planning, like so now, like before I leave, even if I'm real busy, if I've got a shitload to do, I'd rather stay up two, three hours into the night to do that. Yeah. But make sure that I have the kids occupied and doing stuff with them to sort of give her time off so she, you know, can relax before the big 24-7 starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also having friends oh, yeah. is so important. Well, yeah. Well, it's a bit it's a bit tricky. We just got well, you've got the news this morning that we live in a part of the city that's now been declared a COVID hotspot. So having people around oh, to well. yeah, to help out is a it's not an option. It's, it's a tricky time in, in history. But we're all in yeah. it together and that's the really interesting part. And we're all gonna figure out yeah. a way to deal with it because we'll have to, because there's no other option yeah. but to figure out how to yeah. deal with it. And that's just kind of where we are. Ursula, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but I hang around the back of the stage at Masked Singer, right? And we've got a little monitor there and we can hear everybody. And everyone, they hear you talking, they're like, I just want to be your best fucking friend. Can she come and can she come <laughs> over? Can, can we have Zoom dates? Can we drink wine together? Like, <laughs> I'm, the answer is yes. Yes, you can. <laughs> I am so happy you're in my life, Ursula. You have brought such oh. joy. I, I've always been a fucking fan. And then I get to work with you. And you are such a generous performer and you, your outlook on life is just so – you're a fucking ray of sunshine and I'm just delighted. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted that more people can get to see you because of what we're doing. It's just fucking excellent and I'm grateful for it. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad to be working with you too because I've seen you on fucking everything. Yeah. And then as soon as I met you, like my manager goes, what's he like? You know, because everyone's an like, Oscar fan. What's he like? What's he like? I go, oh, he's fucking amazing. I go, as soon as you meet him, you're going to go, we need to have dinner. That's that's the kind of – and then you go, oh, he's a vegan celiac. Maybe not dinner. Maybe we'll do something else. Oh, look, my wife's Fijian. She'll make you food that you can't even believe is vegan celiac. Okay, she can good. make the proper islander shit. She knows what's up. She's she's really, really good. I'll tell you what, I reckon you better keep her because I don't know if there's a lot of, you You know, if you if you lose that way, you're going to have to get a chef because. <laughs> uh, Ursula, I've been married before. I don't have any intention of doing this. I'm not getting divorced. There's no fucking way. I am doing absolutely everything in my power to maintain and whatever we, as we spoke about before, all that shit that is like, I'm going to change whatever I have to change about myself to make sure I can hold on to this yeah. human being because she is fucking amazing Good boy. and I'll do anything I can to, to keep this up. <laughs> You're the best ever. Have a yeah. great day off, love. Thanks for doing this on your day off. You're the best ever. And no I'll, worries. I'll see you at work, love, all right? I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Wear something nice. <laughs> I will. Don't you worry. <laughs> see you, Ursula. Bye, love. <laughs> Bye. That was Ursula Carlson. How great is she? How great is she? You can find her online, UrsulaCarlson.com, U-R-Z-I-L-A-C-A-R-L-S-O-N.com. Her special is called Overqualified Loser. It's on Netflix right now. Just type U-R-Z and uh, you'll find it. It's pretty great. Thanks very much to the great team that helped me bring this show to you every week. Andy, my audio producer, Rachel, my executive producer, uh, Haley on the socials, and Mike on the music. 
you're awesome. If you like this show, if this show did bring you some value, if you thought, you know what, that was a good, was a good chat. I know someone who could hear that. Please share this show. Please share this podcast with someone that you feel could do with it. And go and check out some of the Friday episodes. You may not recognize the names of the Monday interviews. That's fine. But there's going to be something for you every Friday. I promise you. I promise you. All right. It is, uh, I'm recording this in a baby nap window. And so I'm going to hit the sack, count backwards from 10, try and get some Zs before Wolf wants to get up and play again because I am cactus. All right. I'll talk to you on Friday. Stay safe. Look after yourself. Do what you can where you are with what you have. Control the controllables. Accept what you can't control. Make sure you eat right. Make sure you sleep right. Drink plenty of water. Hug someone you love before you check your phone in the morning. Touch someone or something. That's it. Don't let that phone be the first thing that hits your brain. All right. I love you. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll talk to you Friday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 